members of each individual here this morning. Uh, whether you're a regular member here, whether you're visiting with us, we're really glad to, to have you. If you're visiting with us, you may be uh, looking for a congregation to be a member of on a regular basis and to worship with and to work with. We sure would uh, appreciate if you consider the church at Oak Mountain here. And uh, if you have questions about what we do, what we teach, why we do what we do, and why we teach what we teach, we'd be glad to sit down with you and talk with you about those things and give you uh, hopefully good, good Bible scriptural answer for your questions. But uh, we appreciate each one's presence today. Today's Mother's Day, of course, and I think we may have some absent who are usually here, absent today, visiting home and visiting mother. We might have some here visiting mother, but uh, whatever the situation is, we're glad you're here. Don't have a Mother's Day sermon. Mother's Day is a secular holiday. It's not a religious day at all. Uh, we appreciate our mothers. I appreciate my mother uh, and uh, good influence that she had on me. But we're going to talk about uh, the Word of God today, what God would have us to know and do. And so uh, we invite you to turn in your Bibles with us as we study together. We're going to study a little bit from that section of the Bible called the wisdom literature. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that it's really a, a library and contains a lot of different kinds of material, a lot of different kinds of literature. A lot of the Bible is, is story, and, and I appreciate that. I enjoy reading the stories of the Bible, and, uh, and uh, that's uh, usually uh, a, a part of the Bible that's pretty easy for us to follow. Some of the Bible contains letters that are written to Christians or to churches. We see a lot of that in the epistles of Paul, for example, but there are other epistles in the New Testament as well. Some of it is legal material. It contains laws, things that people are to do or, or not do. And so that's part of the Bible as well. Some of the Bible is a collection of songs or psalms or, or hymns uh, that uh, were sung in ancient Israel, of course, and we sing many of those even today. The section we're going to take our lesson from today is called the Wisdom Literature. Almost all ancient cultures, at least those of any size, had men that were responsible for collecting material that would uh, give people advice on how to live successfully, how to live a good life, how to live a successful life, how to live a prosperous life. And so you certainly had those wise men in Egypt and the wise men of Babylon, for example, and we read about some of those in the Bible. Well, Israel had its own wise men who collected material that gave advice on how to live a successful life how to live a good life. And so we find wisdom literature written by and produced by Solomon, for example, in the book of Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes in the Song of Solomon. But we find other men contributing to those works as well. And so we're going to take our lesson today from the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature advises us, gives us advice on how to live a successful life. Now, the wisdom literature of the Bible tells us that all wisdom is from God. And so this is really, although it's given to us through men, this is God's advice on how to live a good life, how to live a successful life. And of course, what the Bible teaches us is that we need to live in the fear of the Lord 
and live in harmony with the Lord. That's the best way to live. That's the wisest way to live. Regardless of what the world thinks or says, the best way to live is in harmony and in the fear of the Lord. So we're going to look at the book of Job to begin with today, and then we're going to go uh, just talk about the life of Job and the experience of Job for a little bit, and then we're going to look at the uh, experience of Solomon as well. And so turn to the book of Job. Now, books like Ecclesiastes and, and Job deal with life's perplexing questions. The book of Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom in a practical way, how to live a good life and successful life. The book of Ecclesiastes deals with what's sometimes called speculative wisdom. What's the meaning of life? Uh, how can we have a good relationship with God and things like that? And the book of Job deals with a very perplexing problem, perplexing in his day, perplexing even today. If I'm trying to do right, why is it that things are going so wrong in my life? And Job wrestles with that question, and we wrestle with it as well. So let's think about the experience of Job this morning. Well, the book of Job begins in verse 1 by telling us, introducing us to the character Job, the figure, the, the man Job, saying he lived in the land of Uz, his name was Job, and that he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And so Job was, uh, well, highly respected, not only by the people who knew him, but by God himself. Lived in the land of us. We don't know exactly where that may have been. Some suggest northern Saudi Arabia. And he's described here in really very flattering terms, I, I suppose is one way to say it. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. And he turns away from evil. And so those four ways of describing him, blameless, upright, fearing God, that's sort of a positive description, and turning away from evil. And so he tried to do what was right, and he tried to avoid doing what was wrong. Uh, it's, it reminded me of uh, the description of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and uh, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and walked with God. It's a very similar expression. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14 and then in verse 20, uh, Job is associated with Noah and Daniel as exceptionally righteous men. Because of Job's righteousness, God had blessed him in a very abundant way. He had a large family, the perfect family, so to speak, seven sons, and three daughters and ten children altogether. Seven of them were sons and three of them were daughters. And so a large family and sort of the perfect number, isn't it? Seven sons, three daughters. And he was a very wealthy man as well. Look at verse 3. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all men in the East. Now that's quite a description. The greatest man in all the East. And so sometimes we'll talk about uh, this individual figure in history was the greatest, greatest man of his time, or this was, woman was the greatest woman of her time. And so Job must have been that, the greatest man in, in the East. Job's, and so Job's standing with God is not in question. He's an exceptionally righteous man, 
God Himself testifies about Job's character. In chapter 1 and verse 8, He's described as my servant. God describes Him as my servant Job. There is no one like Him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And so, no question about Job standing with God. Well, if you've studied the book of Job before, or read the book of Job before, you know that Satan comes before God and God asks him, well, where, what have you been doing? Well, I've been going around in the earth. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, the Lord, or Satan answers the Lord in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you made, not made a hedge about him? and his house and all that he has on every side. You blessed the work of his hands and his possessions increased his land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Job, a very wealthy man, Satan says, well, you've bribed Job to be faithful to you. He only is faithful to you because of the things you've given him. If you were to take those things away, Job would renounce you and curse you and turn away from you. And so uh, there's, uh, there's that uh, accusation against Job and, and really against God as well in those words. So verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord, and he takes everything away from him. He takes his children away from him. He takes his possessions away from him. He takes his uh, family away from him, his servants away from him. And so Satan takes everything Job has, everything is taken away from him. With the exception of his wife, we'll see, and, and really she turns against him as well. But look at verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. Satan has said, you take everything away from him and he'll curse you. Rather than cursing God, Job worshipped God. Verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. But that's really only phase one of Job's trial, isn't it? Well, uh, the scene repeats itself. Satan comes before the Lord, and uh, the Lord uh, says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. And Satan says, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Everything was taken away. Now Satan advances the trial. Now I've taken everything away. Okay, that's, if you were to harm his body... If you were to, to compromise his health and his physical well-being, then he would renounce you and curse you. And so the Lord says, all right, go ahead. <laughs> and so the Bible tells us that Satan smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And so we usually think of Job's trial in those terms, sore boils, Look at a couple of other descriptions as to what's going on with Job. Chapter 7 and verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. And so think about that. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of... That, that's, that's pretty disgusting really, isn't it? If you think about 
think about that. Look at chapter 30 of the book of Job, chapter 30. And we're going to pick up in, in verse 30. You see, a little bit more a description of what Job is going through as Satan touches his body. Job 30, verse 30. My skin turns black on me, and my bones burn with fever. So when I think about boils, I usually think about these risins. You know, in the old days, we might call them risins. Kind of all over and... But, but it's more than that, isn't it? His skin is, is turning black on him. And uh, he has other afflictions as well. Look at uh, chapter 19 of the book of Job. Chapter 19, verses 19 through 20. All my associates abhor me, and those I love turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. And so, it sounds like he's skin and bones there, doesn't he? And so, he's got these boils, his skin is turning black, and uh, he's lost weight, perhaps, just skin and bones. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12 as well. Chapter 2, verse 12. When his friends came, they lifted up their eyes at a distance and didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. His friends don't even recognize him. Things are so bad. And then chapter 7 and verse 13. If I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will, will ease my complaint, you then frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. So he can't sleep. He's having bad dreams. And so... All kinds of things are going on with Job. You know, that's what Satan would do to us if he could. I have no question about that at all. It's exactly what Satan would do with each one of us if he was given that opportunity. Even Job's wife turns against him. In Job chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, she says, Look, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job responds by saying, you speak like one of the foolish women. You're not wise at all. That's not, that's not a wise way to deal with God, even when things are going bad. You speak like one of the foolish women. And Job is deeply discouraged by all of this, of course. We would say he suffers a deep depression. He wonders what he's done wrong to bring these things on him. He, asks, he does ask the question, why? why? Why is this happening? In chapter 3, very powerful passage in the book of Job, he, he wishes he had never been born. He says in verse uh, 3, let, let the day perish on which I was born in the night, which I said, which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. I wish I could turn the calendar back. The day I was conceived, just take that day off the calendar. You know? We wish I had never been born. He's suffering physically, he's lost his possessions, his family, his wife. In fact, in chapter 17, it seems in the mind of Job at any rate, he's become the enemy of God himself. Job 17, beginning in verse 11. God hands me over to the ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces he has set me up as his target. Now remember, Job doesn't know anything about this conversation that went on between Satan and God. 
don't know anything about that. He's in the dark as far as that con that's concerned. And he says, you know, why is, why is God doing this to me? But there are hopeful moments in the book of Job as well. Especially Job chapter 19 and verse 25. There are several we could turn to, but for the sake of time, we'll look at this one. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we sing that song, I know that my Redeemer lives. That comes right out of Job. And so Job is struggling, and sometimes it's, I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm innocent. I haven't done anything to deserve all of this. I, you know, it seems like God has made me his target. But I know, and then there's the positive. I know that my Redeemer lives. And so that's the, a, good, a good reflection, a good picture of human experience, isn't it? Sometimes we're down, and sometimes we're up, and sometimes we don't know what's going on. And sometimes we say, well, I don't know, but, but praise God, I just put everything in his hands. Job is optimistic at times about his future. At the end of the book, God speaks and really doesn't give Job any explanation. He doesn't say, let me tell you about what happened. Satan came to me one day, and, he, and this is why this is happening. God doesn't tell him about all that. Really what God says is, I'm God and you're not. And so you need to trust me. And yield to me and put your hand, put your life into my hands, and I let me deal with it. He only asserts his own sovereignty, his own divine authority. He expects Job to acknowledge that and repent. You can see that at the end of the book, beginning in chapter 40, and, and uh, at least that's uh, the passage we'll look at. Look at verse 14. Then I will also confess to you that you're own right hand can, let's back up a little bit, Job chapter 40. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like His? And so forth. I, I am God. And, and you're, you're not. You're weak. You're human. You're frail. You just need to trust me. And so Satan is allowed to afflict Job's body. He's allowed to take everything away from him. And yet at the end of the story of Job, the Lord rewards Job. Now he punishes, Job does repent of some of the things, or he just says he repents, of, he needs to repent, he does. And uh, in verse 7 it says, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of Job's friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Job, Job doesn't understand what's going on, but he's faithful to God. He doesn't turn his back on God, doesn't forsake God. And so he doesn't understand. He wrestles with it. He struggles with it, but he's faithful to God. And in the end, God rewards him. Let's think about Solomon's experience for a few minutes. And so, go for Solomon's experience, let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Solomon was the third king of Israel. He was David's son. And uh, Solomon, for a good long time, or, or for a while at any rate, during his reign, did, he did very well. Remember, God invited Solomon to ask anything of him that Solomon wanted, and God would grant it. 1 Kings chapter 3. And so Solomon prayed for wisdom. I don't know how to go out and come in. We'd say, I don't know how to get in out of the rain, you know. 
I need wisdom. If I'm going to lead this nation, I need some wisdom. And so, and so God says, that's, that's a wonderful request. And because you didn't ask for a long life or riches or power or any of those kinds of things, I'm going to give you those things in addition to giving you wisdom. And so Solomon was, was uh, very, very prosperous. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 34 to get a good, a good, uh, a good idea of the prosperity that he enjoyed. Remember Solomon that builds the temple in Jerusalem. But there are some warning signs in the story of Solomon as well. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7 there, Israel is forbidden to marry those who are not Israel. And several nations are mentioned there that they are not to intermarry with. And we find Solomon doing that, taking wives from the various nations around. And it says that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And so instead of standing fast and serving the Lord like his father David did, Solomon turned away from his wives, influenced him, and turned him away from the Lord. And it's during that period of time, apparently, that Solomon pens the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the name Solomon is not in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he describes himself as the son of David and a king, chapter 1 and verse 1, and in verse 12. He's described as a wise man in chapter 12 and verse 9, and he's greater than all who went before him, chapter 1 and verse 16. And so, with good reason, it's always been associated with, down through the years, at any rate, associated with Solomon. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, you know, I'm in a position to experience everything that life has to offer. I'm king, I'm incredibly wealthy, I have the time, I have the resources, I have the opportunity to experience everything that life has to offer. And so he sets out to do that. In chapter 2, he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And he says, it too was futility. As a matter of fact, if you read down through chapter 2, you see in some detail the things that he entertained himself with. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of trees. I made ponds for water, of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many, many, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Notice that. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. If I wanted it, I got it. You know. My heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. And I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. He found that life under the sun, 
And that, that expression just describes life taking into consideration only what I experience under the sun. Not thinking about heaven, I'm not thinking about God's will, I'm talking about life under the sun. Life as it's lived here in this world, in a worldly sort of way. I, I experience everything. Every pleasure you can experience. I was in incredibly wealthy. I was able to do anything I wanted and build anything I wanted. I, 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 I was a wise person. I had the knowledge. I had the intellectual knowledge and the education. All of the, I had all of that. I could do anything I wanted to do. I could make anything I wanted to make. All I had every, every, everything. And he says, just, it's just vanity, just empty. You know, one of the reasons that it's empty, you go down in chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. I got all of this stuff, and I know one day I'm going to die, and I can't take it with me. I got to leave it to somebody, and who knows whether he'll take care of it and appreciate it and increase it or just waste it and throw it all away. How many times we hear about that being done? Here you got a man, and he builds a financial empire. He passes it on to the next generation, and they're bankrupt in a few years. You know, that's the experience of Solomon. And so, and so just think about that. Solomon and his position, his resources, his ability, there, there's nothing that could be done that was outside of his reach. And he says, didn't mean a thing. After all is said and done, at the end of life, none of this amounts to anything. Oh, it might give you some temporary satisfaction or some temporary happiness, it's pleasure, you know, it's riches, it's power. It might give you some satisfaction, but it's only temporary. It's like trying to catch the wind as it goes by. It's just complete futility. Well, so here we have these two men. Here's the experience of Job, a righteous man. God had blessed him richly. Satan's permitted to take away all that he had. Satan is allowed to afflict Job's body. Here's Solomon. He's a king in a position to enjoy all that life had to offer. He found that life under the sun was vanity and striving after the wind. Now we did talk about the end of Job's story. It's not on the chart that God blessed him because he was faithful to him. And so we might say this. Job was a man who appeared to have nothing, but he had everything because he had God. And so you look at Job's life, look at his, the way his friends must have seen his life. Job has nothing. But we know better. <laughs> he has everything because he has God. What can we say about Solomon? Solomon appeared to have everything. <laughs> but at this point in his life, at any rate, he had nothing because he didn't have God. Oh, he had the wealth, he had the power. Had the, the resources, had, had, had the pleasure. He, he says, it amounts to nothing if you don't have God. Remember the end of the story of Solomon, Ecclesiastes? After all has been heard, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This, 
This is the whole duty of man. This is what life's all about. Fear God, keep His commandments. Which one do we want to be like? <laughs> well, we have the ability to choose, don't we? It would be better to have nothing and have God than to have everything and not have God. We got to be careful that we don't get caught up in the superficial promises of this life, in the possessions that this life has to offer, that we don't get caught up in the pursuit of those things and neglect our spiritual well-being, in the pleasure of this life, in the power of this life, in the pos position of this life, the prestige of this life. We've got to be careful that we're not seduced by the things that this life has to offer and we sell our soul for things that are only temporary at best. It's not uh, no effect that the Scripture warns us over and over and over again about what Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches. We need to be careful about that. Sometimes people think, well, you know, if I just had this amount of money, or if I just had this, you know, lived in this condition, just achieved this standard of living, then, I, I'd have, then my life would be great. I'd be content with all of that. Well, well, money does solve some problems. You know, we have to admit that. In fact, I thought about the early Christians raised money to help those who were poor, other Christians who were poor. Remember that? So money does solve some problems. But at some point, money becomes a corrupting influence. We have enough, but we want more. The one who acquires silver will not be satisfied with silver, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says. And if we're not careful, we'll do what we should not do to get it. Oh, we've got enough. We're not going hungry, but we want more. And if we're not careful, we'll do what we shouldn't do to get more. We'll be dishonest and unjust, and forsake our family, become lax in our spiritual duties, like attending the services, just to get more. It's not that we don't have, we just want more. We've got to be careful about that. It's very seductive, isn't it? The deceitfulness of riches. That's how Jesus described. No wonder it's described in the King James Bible as filthy lucre. Yeah, money solves some problems. But money alone will not bring happiness and contentment. Proverbs 15, verse 16, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil. We need to be careful about the pursuit of pleasure, the good life. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the pleasures of this life. The book of Ecclesiastes contains statements as, you know, I know nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy life. That, that's great. And we need to do it within the limits of godliness, but, but enjoy life. The Bible doesn't teach us to deprive ourselves. Now, it teaches that there's an appropriate context for certain pleasures, marriage, for example. It teaches us that excesses are to be forbidden or are forbidden, drunkenness, for example. And it teaches us that neglecting those safeguards will be harmful to us. The Bible says that, you know, the widow who gives herself to pleasure is dead even while she's living. But enjoying the pleasures of this life as an end in itself is disappointing and unsatisfying. Well, that's the experience of Solomon. And Ecclesiastes teaches us that. There's another way. 
Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 10 and verse 10. And Paul says that we need to lay hold of the life which is life indeed. There's a better way. A way in harmony with God's will. A way uh, that uh, walks according to His, to his direction is, is the better way. A little self-control, a little self-restraint, a little self-denial will enable us to obtain that better life. And we need to be careful about the pursuit of power or position or those kinds of things. There are people may, motivated by ambition and pride. They're ambitious and will sell their souls for power. I'm tempted to say all you got to do is watch the political <laughs> advertisements on TV. And I see some examples of that. People that will sell their souls to acquire the power of this world. Others that might have smaller goals. They might just want power in their career. I want to be powerful in my family. or I want to be powerful in the local church. Just want control. I want to have influence. I want to be able to speak and have everybody listen to me. And, but we need to know that power in this life is short-lived at best. And then those who have acquired it will have to bow their knee. There are people that are ambitious, sometimes even in the local church, they're ambitious and they want to have control and power. One day, they will bow the knee to the Lord. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God consists of humble servants. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 20, he makes that contrast between the power of this world and he says, not so shall it be among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant. We, we just need to be careful that we're not seduced by that, you know, that, that, that allure of power and, and control. Rather, develop humility and serve one another. Vaulting ambition is never a good thing in God's sight. So here are, the, here are these two men who have Job's experience. It looked like he had nothing, but it really had everything. Because he had God. Here, here's Solomon on the other hand. Looks like he's got everything. But he's got nothing. Because he doesn't have God. We need to keep our relationship with God and the promise of the world. We need to keep those things in the right perspective and in the right priority. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil in it. And if we need to readjust our readjust our goals and what we want to achieve in life, well, we just need to readjust those things. Because if we gain the whole world and lose our soul, we, we've lost it all. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're, we're thankful for your love. We're, we're thankful that you are interested in us, that you're interested in our lives, that it matters to you. Our, our well-being matters to you. Father, we're thankful for all the good things that you've given us from this life. We're thankful for life itself. We're thankful for the houses we have, the clothes we have to wear, the, the food that we have to, to eat. We're thankful for the blessings we enjoy that go beyond the, the bare necessities of life. So many in this world, Father, struggle to have even those necessities, and you've blessed us with so much more. But help us, Father, to understand 
that acquiring the things of this life, in, in whatever form, is, is, is really dissatisfying and unfulfilling and should not be our ultimate goal in life. Help us, Father, to have you, to be your children, to walk with you, to enjoy the spiritual blessings that you have to give to your children, and especially, Father, the prospect of heaven. Help us develop that attitude, Father, even if it means having less of what this world has to offer. Help us, Father, to be faithful children of yours, to always walk hand in hand with you. We trust you, Father. We're confident that you will see us through all the trials of this life into an eternal home of glory. And we ask your help in those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you're subject to the invitation today, you have opportunity to respond. If you're a penitent believer, a believer